Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the show. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. It is Monday, September 7th. Uh, Welcome to the show. It is Labor Day, and I hope you got a nice day off today. If not, my God, thank you for going to work on Labor Day. God knows it's appreciated by me. God knows it's appreciated by all of us who are able to to you know, get the things we need on a day that you know is, is meant for rest if you're working in this country. So thanks a lot for going to work. And if you're off, I hope you have a lovely day off. And thanks for letting me be a part of your Labor Day, spending a little bit of time with you. And what a show you, you got here today. Jim Carrey is on the show today, my conversation with him and his co-author Dana Vachon about Jim Carrey's book called Memoirs and Misinformation, which feels like a bit of a guessing game. Like the entire time I was reading it, I was going, is this – What's real here and what's not real here? And then slowly, I don't want to get all woo-woo on you, but slowly you start to realize it doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter what's real and not real, man. Dude. All right. uh, After that, you're going to hear Tanisha Scott, who's the choreographer for this new uh, television show called Utopia Falls. And you might be going, oh, yeah, choreographer for a TV show. Interesting choice. You know, God knows we have a lot of choreographers on the show. But this is an interesting one because not – just a choreographer for a new TV show, but is responsible for really changing the game when it comes to music video choreography all over the world by bringing in Jamaican dance hall moves into and, and now once you see it, once you start hearing what she's talking about, you'll start realizing you see it everywhere. You see it in all kinds of genres right now. Um, and Tanisha Scott is is responsible for bringing that in, and she's Canadian, so we're excited to talk to her. After that, Alicia Keys, uh, who talks about her entire career, starting out with when she was learning piano uh, at the beginning, to the success of Fallen, to how Oprah changed her life, to how a um, to a bad photo shoot early in her career changed her life as well, and and what she accounts. Uh, for her positivity, her relentlessness, and her success over these years. All right, Alicia Keys. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. Happy Labor Day. I hope you get a good uh, day off today. And if you are working today, thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for going to work on Labor Day. All right, take a listen to this. <laughs> Somebody stop me. All right, that's Jim Carrey. Now, picture Jim Carrey, if you will, in his underwear, grappling with Nicolas Cage in a martial arts battle surrounded by Nick's collection of dinosaur skeletons. I got to say, there are just some sentences you don't ever expect to say in your radio career. Anyway, in this scenario, Jim Carrey is torn between two movie roles, starring as Chairman Mao or an adaptation of the board game Hungry Hungry Hippos. Listen, I I realize it's 2020 and anything can happen, but before you believe any of this, it's all fiction. Kinda. It's from the new novel, Memoirs and Misinformation, which Jim Carrey wrote with Dana Vachon. And the reason I say kinda is because it's a mix of real moments from Jim's life tangled up with some imaginary ones. So you're constantly going, did this actually happen? Is this real? And Jim describes the book as, quote, none of this is real and all of it is true. Jim Carrey and Dana Vachon join me over Zoom to talk about it. Jim and Dana, welcome to the show. Nice to see you. Good to be here on Tom Power Radio. With great power comes great Tom and responsibility. There you go. You know what? That's what my mom used to say to me all the time. With great power comes great Tom and responsibility. (laughs) Dana, this book comes out of eight years of work together. I read that one of your first face-to-face meetings with Jim was in his studio in New York. I wonder if you can give me like a... Uh, Paint me a picture of what you saw that day when you went in to meet Jim. Uh, My earliest encounters with Jim had been watching In Living Color and then, you know, as like a kid and then years later seeing him in Man on the Moon and marveling at the artistic transformation. And what I saw was someone who was in the the beginning of another amazing transformation like that. I could sense it. Um, So we we chatted and then um, some time went by and... uh, we were both we both realized we were insomniacs who would who would download large amounts of early human history and apocrypha on streaming services in like at three a m 
And that sort of led us to the first chapter of the book and this yeah. wonderful long conversation. It really began in an art studio in New York. And uh, he walked in and saw me uh, amongst uh, the uh, vestiges of my life. Uh, you know, the, uh, the torn to pieces uh, deconstructed me in every version known to man. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah. immediately we, we connected. And there were images there that were resonant where you, you had to take note of them. Like it's a painting of Malibu in flames. There's a self-portrait that had been slashed. I thought, okay, like there is, you know, this is someone who is, who's really, you know, uh, diving deep. I was looking for uh, the piece that lies beyond personality. Well, I, I, I'm interested in talking about the piece that lies behind personality. And I'm especially interested in the way that you did it, because there's a lot of options ahead of you in terms of your collaboration together. You could have done a traditional novel, just, you know, you could have done a work of fiction. You could have done a, a memoir. You know, what I read here, Dana, is is something sort of in between. You know, it is obviously a, a work of fiction. There's moments I can recognize of Jim's actual life in there. So I'm, I'm curious as to why this particular synthesis was the, was the road you wanted to go down. I, w I was always interested by the engineering of a, of a medieval cathedral and that, you know, it's not a natural space, right? It's a constructed space, but it's constructed in the service of a truth because you have these vaulted spaces where you can put early cinema, right? Stained glass windows that often tell the, the story of the passion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, saw, I, I thought of the fiction as being the construction, but constructed in service of illuminating these beautiful visions of a true past, much of which was in Canada. And, and I thought that the line had already been blurred. And then we got together and we realized it had not only been blurred, but it had been befouled because most celebrity memoirs were messing with the truth anyway, either yeah. through omission or distortion. Reordering of things to make, to make it look uh, glowing. Uh, and, and I've always believed that, uh, you know, persona is a fiction to begin with. You know, most of us are walking around as a fiction, right? You know, we mm -hmm. have uh, our religion, sure, and that's an idea, and we have our nationality, and that's an idea. And but when you drill down to it, what's left? You know, everything. You know, there's 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 just everything left. I think Jim just hit on you had to do that because for the in this case because to be an artist who is so well known is to contend with fictions of you that exist in a billion minds. So you are you're dealing with fiction if you are someone of his profile, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And I guess that that's what stuck out to me in terms of like that this didn't seem new for you, Jim. Like if I look back to the Truman Show or I look at your portrayal of Andy Kaufman in, in, in Man on the Moon and not just that, but like the, the Netflix film that came out later where I was sort of trying to delineate between who's the actor here and what am I really seeing? And then in, even in Kidding, I felt the same way that I still saw shreds of what I might know as Jim Carrey in that character there's always a there has to be truth there's only one well to draw from and you can dress it up however you want to but if that core of truth isn't there the water doesn't uh, quench your thirst uh even the uh biographical truth is a construct you know uh, and and so uh, i wanted to get past that what's beyond the invention and disguise you know what's beyond the red s we have on our chest you know, that makes the bullets bounce off, you know, uh, and, and this book does that. It, uh, it really basically uh, looks at uh, how persona becomes sarcophagal. And at a certain point, if you build a strong enough one, uh, you got to claw your way out in order to get to the real you. What is it about the tension between real and unreal that you find so exhilarating? I think real is an illusion. I really just think it's as simple as that. Right. I think that there's, you know, I, I, I adhere to the old uh, Advaita Vedanta, which means the knowledge that there are no two things. And uh, it's the best thing Buddha ever said. And, uh, and that is, you know, Advaita Vedanta is the, the, the basic tenets of it is that there is the absolute and there's the relative. The relative is you and me relating to each other as separate things. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of craziness can happen because the ego keeps reminding us that we're separate things and there's something at stake and there's something I can lose. The absolute is the knowledge that there is nothing that isn't you. So there is nothing to lose and nowhere to go, you know? And, uh, and if you get a sense of that, if you get a real understanding of that, you get glimpses. And I tried, you know, that was one of our main goals in this book is to, go through this absurd journey of, of definition and of, of, of the madness of Hollywood and the, the burning down of old structures to get to at least a moment 
at least a taste of that infinite nothingness or everythingness, you know? Dana, did you, I mean, this is quite a path to go down. And, and Jim, I know you've been down this path for a while. And, you know, how much work did you have to do sort of even personally or, or spiritually uh, or um, existentially to, to start working on this book? I mean, I think um, it, we both had similar references, which is probably why the conversation was so rich starting out. And, I, and we do see things differently, but there were like key cardinal works like Malik, like the Thin Red Line, where we could both watch that and, and see the exact, basically the same thing. So we were able to come together and, and I learned a lot about how Jim sees the world and, and Jim is the subject of the book. So that was my job. So there was no problem for me there. We have our, we both have our expertise as well. You know, he's a, he's a much more educated fellow than me. And uh, so he knows in a classical sense, how to come at these things. And, uh, and I have been a seeker my whole life. Uh, so I have done my own research and uh, you know, so it's, a, it was a wonderful combination. And then also I think I learned about like how to go into the unknown, you know, Jim's a great, a truly great artist. And there's a fearlessness that, that comes with that uh, capacity for discovery that, uh, that was always exciting for me. It was, was an incredible thing to get to be around. I mean, re- you know, reading the book reminded me of that thing you said, Jim, on, on Jimmy Kimmel's show, where you said, I wrote it down. Um, Jim Carrey's a great character. And I, I was, I feel lucky to have gotten the part of Jim Carrey. What? I've been able to play that part. Sure. But, but, you know, but the Jim Carrey who goes to the store and buys a cup of coffee or uh, the Jim Carrey who goes buys a head, head of lettuce, what's the difference you think between that Jim Is Carrey? Is an infinite being that needs caffeine. <laughs> and, and green vegetables. Between that, what's the difference between that? I think that's the secret, by the way, to Canadian niceness. Chicory. I play a game with myself whenever I come back home to Canada, man. It's like, how long can I go without saying the word Tim Hortons? <laughs> Really, not very long. What's the difference between the the Jim Carrey in the line of Tim Hortons and the Jim Carrey in this book? Uh, well, ultimately, none. There is no difference. You know, they're both uh, their ideas. You know, uh, and uh, you know, abstract constructions. I I truly believe that. Uh, you know, and this is not an arrogant thing. I'm not being supercilious when I say. You know, we all have this. You are the space in which you're in which all of this is happening. And if you really feel that for a second, you know, and I started out by, you know, trying to understand the text and really being inspired by it and going like, okay, well, I sat back one day and I went, well, what if that coffee table was my foot? And I I tried to kind of expand my consciousness that way, actually just physically, like the coffee table is my foot. And I'll try to feel that as a part of my body. I actually try to experience it like you could experience your hands. Mm. You know, you can feel a feeling inside your hands when you when you concentrate on them. So I started that and it started to expand itself until I become the walls around you, you know, and uh, I, I become you and, uh, and the air we breathe. And we, we, we have everything in common. There's nothing we don't have in common. We are one thing. Try to breathe without the trees and you'll find out quickly. Isn't it, isn't it a bit scary to let go of that sense of just um, yourself, of, of who, you, who you've been told you are and who you feel that you are? It's the most terrifying thing in the world. It's the most terrifying thing in the world because you're being, you're being asked to die to this thing you've been protecting your whole life. But here's the great part. You don't have to stay there, you know? And in fact, you can't. You know, there, there are moments where I've gotten to that, that place of understanding and that tangible feeling of it and gone, my God, uh, I'm never going back. I feel so free. I, there's, there's no me. It's just I feel the ocean, the bottom of the ocean and the rings of Saturn and whatever else uh, is, is uh, one thing. And it's an incredible feeling. And then the... the illusion of our lives becomes so compelling that you get dragged back into the program. Yeah. And you must, but you must come back and go, all right, well now I gotta, I gotta get a cup of tea, you know, you must come back and all right. You you gotta feed the body and the brain. Yeah. And you gotta feed it with friendship and you gotta feed it with love. And this, this, this vessel, this thing requires a lot, requires a lot of love and love and care and with relevance, you know, some sort of relevance. Even in your own life. I think, I think this sort of self-examination is interesting on a person like yourself, Jim, whose life has been so examined 
And when I was doing research for this interview, I was coming across, I mean, a lot of biographical information, you know, the story of Jim Carrey. And in Canada, you know, I know we have a deep pride for you. I do too. I, I love Canada. It's a, it's an extraordinary place that, that seems to give everyone who comes from there a, a, a sense of a, a special grace. Uh, and, we and, and it's known in the world. All the dream and none of the catastrophe. Canada. <laughs> yeah, we were stationed there during Vietnam. I mean, just like, you know, we didn't, there, there's a lot of things we didn't have to deal with directly that we had a, an outside perspective on and it's kind of overlooked. Dana, what did you, what did you learn about Jim that perhaps we, we don't know or perhaps you didn't know going in? Um, I mean, quite a lot, but because when I, when I went into this, one of the first projects was to download enough of his memories into my head so that I could achieve some kind of a virtuosity with another person's experience. So that was a, a task that I didn't know I was undertaking. That was probably two years of talking on the phone at that point. I don't think we were Skyping. That was like 2012. Yeah, I, we I was living on in the Brooklyn. Phone I'd go walk at night. <clears throat> so, I mean, the biography, I mean, I, the first books I read growing up were biographies, William Manchester, you know, my father would have his books and I would just crack them open. So I took that very seriously. The, the, the work of the biographer um, had to be done before um, uh, you could begin to the, the experimental literary project of, of a, uh, an autofiction or, uh, yeah, or an anti-memoir. And you have to download you know, I was downloading to him all the time and he would come out with uh, these extraordinary ideas. And I would say, that's wonderful. And here's actually something even more yeah. insane there, that really happened. There is a magic. I mean, it's, it's great. Like there was a moment where like we've been talking and we, he was in New York. So we met and we, we, you know, we read through the chapter and and Jim goes, well, it was the Kelsey Grammer chapter, the the the, the seance, the mm -hmm. cult and. Album. Jim goes, look, this is this is great, you know, well done. But what what's missing here is Danny's clearly. I mean, I, I can see it. Kelsey wants to be the guru, and I thought, oh, that's the that's Jim Carrey. Ego has ego hasn't entered the room yet. Ego <laughs> in the room and because we, I've had those gatherings with like actual spiritual teachers come over to dinner and friends who come, and we we're dying to ask these people who are you know very wise. Uh, and discerning uh, our, our most, you know, heartfelt questions. And, you know, one guy won't shut up because <laughs> he's going, I think what it is, <laughs> it's, it's this, right? And, and they're like, they'll do this oration and then look to the guru and say, am I right? <laughs> now, hold on, he's guru. I was in, I was in Waterworld and I have a couple of thoughts on this. And that's, yeah, I, I, I understand. Yes, totally. exactly. Exactly. And we're just going, you know, we really invited him here to hear him. But you, you mentioned Kelsey Grammer. These people are named, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kelsey Grammer, Anthony Hopkins, Nick Cage, yeah. however, obsessed with fighting aliens and possessing Excalibur. Um, have you heard anything from them or their lawyers or anything? <laughs> I've heard from my lawyers. I think I'm okay. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, it's very, it's very innocuous. There's, we, it's not like we go for anybody's juggler, jugular, yeah. you know, uh, no. it's a, it's slightly less, uh, penetrating or, or upsetting than a, a Ricky Gervais Golden Globe speech. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I poke fun at everybody. I poke fun at my family. I poke fun at my friends. And I think no human being should be above that. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's all good. And, uh, and, you know, they've been renting space in our heads, right? Yeah. For a very long time. So I think uh, a, a little appropriation should be okay. I heard Nick Cage was, was cool with it. I heard he liked it. Nick Cage loves it. He's out of his mind over it. He's really happy that I gave him all the best lines. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I, I want to play a clip, and this is another one of the real people who makes an appearance in memoirs and misinformation. Take a listen to this. Well, the first time I saw a psychiatrist, I felt like two cents. I was a kid. I said to him, Doc, can you help me? All day long, he's thinking I'm ugly. He made me lay on a couch face down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. The great one. I tell you, when I was a kid, I got no respect. No respect at all, you know? The time I was lost on a beach, and a cop had me look for my parents. I said to the cop, I think we'll find them. He said, I don't know, kid, there's so many places I could hide. <laughs> That's a, a little bit of Rodney Dangerfield from a Tonight Show appearance in the early 1970s. And I guess are Jim Carrey and Dana Vachon. Jim, I know Rodney gave you one of your first big breaks in show business. He took you on as an opening yeah. act. He makes an appearance in this book in the form of a talking rhinoceros. It's one of my favorite parts of this book. 
I found it such a tender moment. And I didn't know about the connection between you and, and Rodney. I, I, was, I wondered if you could tell me something about, about you and Rodney Dangerfield. Well, we go way back. And I was living in Canada when he hired me the first time. And <clears throat> he saw me do my amazing Kreskin impression. And he literally fell on the ground laughing. And he wasn't just laughing because it was one of the funniest things I did. He was laughing also because he knew that really people in America didn't know Kreskin. And he goes, that's the biggest thing you do and nobody knows it. (laughs) (laughs) He thought it was kind of absurd. But yeah, he was an incredible human being and a tremendous support. If he loved you, man, it was like under the wing and, uh, you know, telling you what you needed to know and that you needed to make the tank so strong that no bonehead could stop it you know, and all of those things and supported me when I was experimenting and would stand backstage laughing and going, those, man, those people are looking at you like you're from another friggin' planet, man, (laughs) you know, and, uh, but supported me, kept hiring me. And, uh, he was just lovely to me. First time he ever saw me, he said, Hey kid, you ever been in love? You know, (laughs) I was so green coming from Canada, you know, that, uh, yeah, we, we had beautiful times together and, Joan Dangerfield has gotten in touch with me since she read the book. She read it in two days. She said she couldn't put it down. And many of the phrases were stuck in her head. And uh, she's very happy about it. So I look forward to everybody who's going to come forward. But, but it was an opportunity for me to, to tell the world that, to me, there was a very special, you know, divine spark that was handed between us. Yeah. You know, and, uh, he loved my father, Percy Carey who was the funniest man I've ever known in the world. And uh, so the first time dad ever came down to Vegas, he came backstage to meet Rodney and Rodney was smoking a joint. And, uh, and uh, he looked up at my father. I said, Rodney, this is my dad. And he said, he looked up from the joint and he went like, uh, is, is this my dad, Percy? And he said, uh, oh, sorry, Percy. You know what I mean? I got to have this stuff, man. It makes me creative, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I'm a freaking pothead, man. You know what I mean? Like that. And, my, and, and he said, you, you want to hit this, Percy? And he offers my dad a joint. And my dad, without thinking, without a moment's pause, said, oh, no. If I start that, I'll be up to two packs a day in no time. <laughs> and Rodney went... Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> that, and from then on, they were best friends. They were fast friends, man. My dad and I were like, we would spar with Rodney. And when I ran out of stuff to say, I would tap him. And he'd tap in and come in with his stuff. And it was just so much fun. He loved them so much. So I wanted to put that across. I wanted to, people to know. That's R.E.M. with their song from 1992, Man on the Moon, from the soundtrack to the movie Man on the Moon from 1999, which holds up pretty good, by the way, starring my guest, Jim Carrey. You are listening to my conversation with Jim Carrey and his co-author, Dana Vachon. Their new novel is called Memoirs and Misinformation. It's Jim Carrey's first novel. It's this surreal, kind of apocalyptic satire of fame and celebrity. And the very first hint you get of that surreal vibe is when you look at the cover of the book. It's got this strange, blurry photo of Jim taken in Hawaii in 2018. So I'll I'll give you the story. There had just been a public warning saying that a missile attack on the islands was minutes away. And a film producer named Linda Hill accidentally snapped that photo of Jim when she was calling him to tell him the news that, well, his time on Earth was, you know, limited. So the warning turned out to be a false alarm. But for a few minutes, Jim thought it was all about to end. Here's what he remembers from that. Linda Hill called me, uh, FaceTimed me, interrupted Dana and I on a Skype when we were working already. It was eight in the morning or something like that. And uh, she was crying and she said, Chief, we only have 10 minutes. And I said, what do you mean? She said, there's missiles coming. 
they're going to land in 10 minutes. This is real. And uh, the alarms were going off and stuff. And, uh, and as she told me, she was, you know, strenuously clutching her iPhone and she accidentally took a screenshot of my face. So the book's cover is an actual shot of my face after being told that I have 10 minutes to live. So what goes through your head? What goes through your head when you honestly believe that you only have 10 minutes left? Well, if you look at that cover, you'll see a man who's not, uh, not freaking out, not uh, hysterical, more uh, a wave of calm coming over me and a sense of, oh, that's strange. Huh, what a funny way for this all to end, you know? And that's the feeling I got. And then there was the consideration of, do you hide under the stairs? Do you get in the car? What do you do? And I don't want to die in my car. And I tried to get off the island on the phone to my daughter and I couldn't get through. And finally, uh, I just said, you know what? I've had a wonderful life. And uh, I decided to sit there and watch the ocean and, uh, and go through all the ways in my head that I could, uh, that I could be grateful for what I had. And, uh, and I started this list of gratitudes that uh, I could have gone on forever. I mean, just the, how lucky I've been. Are you, are you forever changed by it? Like, I can't imagine going through something like that and not taking it with me when I'm walking down the street. Yeah, it's a part of me. It's a part of this book. It's a part of this book. When, when, when all is lost, then all is found. <laughs> you know? there, was a, there was two minutes left when Dana called back and said uh, it was a false alarm. It so. also is a, you know, it's a tribute to the power, to your earlier question, the blurring of the line between fact and fiction. I mean, this is a man who believes he's got two minutes to live because of a piece of misinformation. <laughs> the cover itself is, is a perfect example of misinformation. I had to go through my own death <laughs> for eight minutes. Dana, you have an interesting perspective here because you've co-written a book that talks about and satirizes fame and celebrity with, I'll say this as a Canadian, extremely famous person. Are there moments from this process that you were a bit taken, ba- taken aback when you got to sort of peer inside the bubble? Well, we were separated by a continent, so that probably was a good thing. So I, I, I always knew Jim as a conversation partner for the for a lot for many years before we were really in the same room a lot working. So by that point, you know, my, my I had, towards the end, I had a little niece who poked her head into one of our Skype and she said, "Are you the Grinch?" <laughs> and I said, he, "I and said, I went, some say I am." <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it, but I was able to see through her eyes that, you know, she's seen Jim through this amazing, per, you know, a, a perennial um, favorite. But I was able to understand uh, Jim as a very special human being. And I had to probably do that in order to to do my job. So the fame thing was something that sort of, I don't know, didn't we had to get past that in order to do our work together. Yeah. But I think I think we're better off getting past it. You know, I've been thinking about I've been thinking about that a lot, you know. Like I, I, I wonder if sometimes if this pandemic is could be the end of celebrity, you know. It's humanizing everybody. And it's just gonna do that, you know. I think that there there will always be people with special talents. And uh and uh even if it's like my brother John who can tear up car apart and put it back together in the 20 below zero with bare hands, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's always going to be that, but as far as exceptionalism, uh, where there's a star or whatever yeah. it is, I think that that, I think that that, uh, jig is up. You know, the, the term apotheosis, right? We, we turn yeah. humans into gods in some, in so many ways. Yeah. And yeah. I've always been very uncomfortable with that in terms of celebrity. The apotheosis well, has nothing to do with the individual. You can't reach apotheosis as an individual. You can't be enlightened as an individual. You have to let the individual go in order to get a glimpse of that enlightenment. That's the way it is. You know, I mean, uh, Ramana Maharshi, 
a wonderful Indian sage, you know, he was on his deathbed and one of his uh, servants came up to him and said, said, uh, Ramana, I, uh, I, I don't want you to go. And he said, where can I go? You know, there's nowhere to go. There's no, nothing that isn't him. You know, I don't, I don't think of my father as gone. Mm. I don't think of my mother as gone. There's, they'll never go. Where are they? Where are they? Yeah. Where aren't they? They're in you. Isn't that comforting? Yeah. Um, Jane, before we go, um, I was on your Twitter feed on Canada Day, and you posted this caption that meant a lot to me. It's Canada Day 2020, time for the North to rise and free itself from all the old Canadian cliches. And then there's a figure of a hockey stick and a beer and a beaver Falting and a shoulder. Moves, and, right. I, don't to, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but we're in an interesting time right now. You know, as a Canadian who spent so much time in the States, I think it's also been an opportunity for Canada, who has often felt superior in so many ways, to look back on the ways that we haven't done right to look back at systemic racism in our land, to look back on our own problems, to address problems in our own backyard. So I, I loved that. I loved that looking beyond the old cliches. Yeah. Where, where, where do you see Canada as a nation going? Uh, I, I admire Canada. I admire uh, our, our country uh, because it's always had a conscience, you know, it's, it's always had a conscience and it still has a conscience. It still wants to take care of its people. You know, down here, there's been, uh, you know, this kind of consorted effort, political effort to marginalize everything and everybody. And if you want to care for somebody, if you want health care for somebody, then you're a socialist and all of those things. They have to come up with incredibly, you know, clever ways of separating us and putting us in groups that can then be, you know, marginalized, you know, Hollywood, it's so Hollywood, they're the elite. Mm -hmm. Well, you can be the elite too, because there is a public library in your town. And that's the gateway to great knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's all there for everyone. There's no Illuminati. We don't, you know, in Hollywood, <laughs> get naked and, you know, run through the woods, you know, together. Uh, they're just a bunch of, you know, entities and people struggling to, to make some sort of relevance for themselves. Believe me, there's no, there's no cult. There's no, uh, there's no organization to it at all, you know? So it's just the way, uh, you know, poli political expedience works. You know, if you, if you call somebody the lefty, you know, even if they agree with some of the things you say, I'm, I'm not a lefty. I'm, I'm a person who wants people not to be destroyed if they have uh, a sickness, an illness, an injury. You know, I don't want the whole house to have to be sold because uh, grandma gets sick. And, and they've, you know, people have been hypnotized down here into thinking that that's not possible. And the, the line is always, well, it's such a disaster in Canada. Well, I grew up in Canada. I never waited for anything. I got good medical attention. All the drugs were free. All the, everything, it, it wasn't a burden. And you know what, damn it, we gotta take care of certain things. We pay our taxes. What are we paying for? You know, why are we standing up and saluting a flag if the flag doesn't stand up for us? You know, in America, it's not standing for anybody right now, you know, except the Mammonites, you know, the uh, oligarchs that are trying to divide and conquer us by turning us against each other. And, and then uh, so they can turn the world upside down and shake it till the money falls out. That's what it is. That's what's going on. It's, 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 it's not Trump being corrupt. It's him with a very specific mm. uh, agenda to cause chaos. You know, it's, it's, it's a heist, man. It's Nakatomi Plaza. Well, it was, it was nice to see you acknowledge your home country there. And I think it was a nice opportunity. As, as Gord Downey said, if we can just get together and acknowledge one another and help one another, it'll go a lot deeper than coffee and donuts yeah for sure for sure well it's been a joy to talk to you jim and dana thanks so much for your time take care tom have a great day jim carrey and dana vachon are the co-authors of the novel memoirs and misinformation and it's out everywhere now sound off by critical frequency 
hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with From Something Else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So I know the concept of the future might not be something you really want to think about right now. I mean, it's hard to imagine what life's going to look like in a few weeks, never mind a few years. But science fiction has swooped in and done it again. There's this new young adult series called Utopia Falls. You can stream it on CBC Jam. And what if I told you it's a futuristic dystopian science fiction musical? Yeah, let me explain. It's 300 years in the future in a place called New Babel. This group of talented teens is getting ready to compete in a big performance. They discover the ancient art of hip-hop. The show's kind of like Glee meets The Hunger Games with a pretty amazing soundtrack. Tanisha Scott is one of the creative forces behind Utopia Falls. She's a Canadian choreographer, a creative director, and a performance director. And she's played a big role in bringing Jamaican dance hall moves into the mainstream. She's worked with Rihanna and Drake and Beyonce, you know, just my, my old buds. Here's our conversation. I love when people defy common knowledge that unless you've been doing something since you were three years old, there's no way you can become successful at it. Like I know your dad was a DJ. You come from a very musical home. But, you know, you're one of the most, if not the most, in-demand choreographer in like Western culture. But you didn't start to choreograph till after university, right? Yes. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, and it's not even something that I per se wanted to do. I just wanted to dance. That was my thing. And I not only just pursued it, but I was just given the right opportunities and I pushed through. I made it mean something. The smallest parts um, that I'd have in a music video, I'd make the most of it. Just in any place or whatnot, I'd let somebody know that I, I dance and it's something I'm interested in or just find the right places to dance so that I can be seen. And through that, it just evolved. And I went with it. I took these chances. I just literally just took a leap of faith in everything that was presented to me that I felt had something to do with dance. And it pretty much worked because I find that anytime you're in something and you love something so much, you want to know so much more about it. So dance doesn't just begin and end with your own personal movement it becomes choreography and then from choreography you go to start trying to teach or do choreography to then it's like wow you know how does somebody tell a story without actually doing choreography it's just movement walking slumped over evokes some type of story to like standing up straight shows confidence is another story to like now creating a world around you so that you can build these stories through dance which entails is what creative direction is and whatnot. So I just pretty much kept evolving within the nucleus of what dance was, the meat and the root of my biggest love, period. Um, I, think, I think it's safe to say that the music video that first put you on the map was for this song. Take a listen. That is Sean Paul and Give Me the Light from 2002. Like, I, I can see that video in my head right now. And like, that was your first gig as a choreographer? Yes, it was. Wow. It was. I had to, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I don't even know how to choreograph. But I was put onto the job as a choreographer, not as a dancer. Like, and I had to figure it out. And through just the blessings of like having like the dopest friends in a community of dancers, I was like, let's just figure this out. And I pretty much had one rehearsal 
And the next day we were shooting. It was scary, but it was also super fun and comforting at the same time because everybody in that video were, if they weren't friends of mine, they were just people that I'm familiar with and we're all within the same community, dance community. So it was a good time. <laughs> and yeah. nobody expected that video to do what it did. Too. I, and, on, and on the way in, I, I mean, I talked about how you're like, you know, a central figure. You played such a big role in bringing Jamaican dance hall dance into mainstream pop culture. Your background is Jamaican. You grew up visiting Jamaica. It's one thing to be exposed to dance hall. It's another ball game to become sort of an expert in teaching it. What was that process like? I guess because it was so innately within me, it was a little easier to teach. It wasn't like I had to study or go to school for it. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I took on the way that my teacher taught me how to do a specific style. It was just organic. It was um, a lot easier because I felt like I was having fun. It wasn't about the technical part of it. It was just more about the feeling of it. Sean Paul is not the only kind of gigantic artist you worked with, as I mentioned on the way in. You've also worked with Cardi B and Beyonce and Rihanna and, you know, great up and coming Toronto rapper named Drake. Um, and you choreographed the music video to one of his biggest hits. Take a listen. I know when that outline bling, that can only mean one thing. I know when that outline bling. Obviously, being ironic there, that is Hotline Bling. That music video has been viewed 1.6 billion times. You choreographed it. You're in it. Did you have any idea what a big deal it would be? Not at all. No. It it almost was like when we worked on um, X and I, Give Me the Light. Like, nobody knew where that would go and how far it would reach. But I tell you, it's the Canadian touch. It's just something that we effortlessly do when we're doing anything when it comes to just art. I find like we just automatically are able to just think out the box and just give something. I I don't know if it's because we're just blended with so many different cultures and, you know, we're like seeing lots of life and things happen in these other countries, you know, especially when it comes to the U.S., they tend to be like what people may think like the forerunners when it comes to entertainment and music. But when you have an eye on what's happening on the outside and you have so much culture already within where you live, like it's it's easy to not just interpret, but to give our own feedback with a different spin and a different eye on things. So I think that's what it is being Canadian. <laughs> as, as, a, as, a, as a choreographer though, I am curious, you know, after Hotline Bling came out, there were all these sort of gifs and all these memes of Drake's dancing. As a choreographer, does that bother you at all? Or, or is it a compliment? You know, it's a compliment because either way, Tom, like if people talk bad about something or if they talk good about something, the fact is that they're talking about it. So it's left an impact on them. That means they've seen it and they have an opinion. Some people don't have opinion on anything. I don't want to be forgotten. I don't want the work yeah. that I yep. do to not be thought about. I want you to remember it. Good <sighs> or bad, and let's have a discussion. So yeah, it's a super huge win. Oh, that's huge. great. Um, so now things have taken a bit of a turn here. So Utopia Falls, as I mentioned earlier, follows a group of teenagers, like 300 years in the future, all participating in a huge performance competition. They discover this ancient art form called hip hop. They end up dancing in a bunch of different genres, all choreographed by you. Like we've talked about hip hop and we've talked about dance hall and we've talked about pop. I just, I feel like you don't typically work in dystopian science fiction, you know? (laughs) (laughs) not at all no but what made this really cool and super progressive it's it just shows that the meat the core of any dance that you learn be when you take a class you have to learn the basic steps you got to go back to the beginning if you want to learn how to do ballet, you're not going to go to advanced ballet. You got to start at the very basic level of it. And with this show, when it came to the dance portion, it was 
like a circus for me, like the best thing ever, because I got to study, relearn, familiarize myself, and even start a whole new chapter of learning different styles of dance that I've never learned before. So I was learning as I was teaching and creating on the show from flamenco, you have the capoeira, of course there's house, you have hip hop, you have voguing, you were whacking. Of course there's modern contemporary, and then there's freestyle. We dabbled on break dancing. It was just a, like a jungle gym. It was challenging in the sense that um, I wanted to make sure that we are completely authentic with the movement mm. giving. Mm -hmm as well as the progression of how each character's own journey that they went through, their personal style in the movement outside of what they learned started to change too. So it was a big task. It was a very big task. You know, a lot of people are home these days looking for something to watch them and their kids or, you know, mm -hmm. trying to find something to keep the, the hours occupied. Uh, I'll close off this way. Why Utopia Falls? What's, what's, what's the pitch to folks who might be home right now looking for something to watch? Oh, outside of just it being entertaining and thought-provoking, it's also a history lesson. It makes you go back and discover different reasons why certain things happened. Of course, in the archive, brings up a lot of stuff from war to, of course, all the different dance styles, music. And it's a discussion for the household, and it's definitely for all ages. And they also hit on a lot of things that have to deal with today. Love has to do with like sexuality. It has to do with growing up. It has to deal with um, just like science fiction in itself. So science, the future, everything. So that's why I say Utopia Falls is definitely a binge watch for this pandemic that we're in. Well, Tanisha, thanks so much for your time. I can't wait until things get back to normal. We can have you in the studio. Uh, we can, I would love We to. can go deeper th through your career and, and maybe I can learn a few moves too. That'd be great. You got it. That's <laughs> what I do best. <laughs> Tanisha, thank you so much for your time and take care and stay safe. Thank you, my love. Take care and be safe too. Tanisha Scott is a Canadian choreographer, creative director, and performance director. Her latest project is the TV series Utopia Falls. You can stream the show now on CBC Gym. That's at cbc.ca slash gym. I keep on falling in That is the voice of Alicia Keys. The way we were all introduced to her, her breakout hit Fallen from 2001 from her debut album Songs in A Minor. Fallen made the world sit up and pay attention to Alicia Keys. She went on to win an incredible 15 Grammy Awards, sell more than 65 million records, work with people like Beyonce, John Legend, Prince, Jay-Z, Nicki Minaj, Drake, and, and actually just influence all of those people as well. Her latest album, Alicia, is her seventh record. It's set to drop a bit later this year. And now that it's been almost 20 years since her big breakout, she's looking back on how she got to where she is. And more important, who she actually is. Without all the perks of fame, without the incredible record sales, without all of the attention. Alicia writes about all this in her memoir called More Myself, A Journey. I got the chance to talk with her about it earlier this summer. Here's our conversation. It's so nice to talk to you. I'm dying to talk about your book, and I'm dying to talk about sort of the lessons you learn about yourself in this journey. And as you're clear about it, it's a journey, not a memoir. So I want to talk about one of these lessons. You're 19. You're just about to blow up. You're booked for a photo shoot for a magazine cover. The photographer convinces your team that he needs to be alone in the room with you. I wonder if you could tell us what happened next. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of strange. You know, it was my very, very first photo shoot ever. It was a big one. Everybody was very excited of it. Um, you know, when you're trying to get yourself and your music heard and yourself out there, you know, it's rare that you get quite big opportunities. And this one was, was awesome. So everybody was really excited. We get in there and we kind of figure everything out. It's my first one. I've never done a big shoot like this before, so I don't really know what to do or what's expected. You can imagine just how uh, brand new everything was. 
And so at some point he kind of asked the team to leave. And, you know, I guess they figured that since he was a pretty big photographer that he just wanted some privacy and just wanted to focus and all those things. And, and when everybody leaves, he definitely, um, you know, he never put his hands on me in any way or in any way violated me physically. But I think that he definitely had an idea of what he wanted to get as a picture. And it, it, he wanted it to be risque and he wanted it to be something that I probably wouldn't have normally been comfortable with. And for sure, everybody who was with me in that room definitely wouldn't have been comfortable. So it's like, can you just kind of lift this a little bit? Can you pull this down a little bit? Can you open this a little bit? Can you, and I'm, and I'm, I'm there, you know, 19 and I'm, I'm like, um, this doesn't feel right. You talk yourself in and out of everything. And, um, you know, finally, when it was all said and done, the photos that came out, I mean, I just was so devastated. I just despised them. I did not like the way I looked. It looked like in a way that I just didn't ever want to represent myself. And I felt like I'd been taken advantage of, you know, and, and kind of manipulated in a way. But I think that that happened to me quite early um, in everything because I needed to know very early that you have to trust your instincts, you know, in life. And I think it changed my trajectory in a lot of ways because I knew that I just never wanted to be in that position. It's nice to revisit some of these like really bright moments from your career reading the book. And, you know, that song Fallen, which I'm sure everybody sang along with as I played it, it was interesting to know. And I didn't know this, that that song didn't do as well uh, when it first came out. It didn't get the airplay that you were hoping for. Radio DJs really didn't know what to do with your music. And then, well, this happened. This is a clip from your first appearance on the Oprah Winfrey Show exactly 19 years ago in June of 2001. Take a listen. Her first CD you wrote and produced and sat there with the people on the keyboards. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's important for me to properly express how I feel at the moment and not have it filtered through other people. It just feels natural for me to to just say how I feel at the moment. So. And be in charge of your own life. Definitely. Oh, you're a woman after my heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, she's it. Thank Alicia Keys. Thanks, Clive. <laughs> Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Clive. That's you talking with Oprah Winfrey. What do you think listening back to that? Oh, my gosh. I remember it like clear as day. It was like uh, just the most, unbelievable moment ever you know we all believed in Fallen so much and we knew that it was such a special song and anybody who heard it really loved it you know it was it was the first time that I was being introduced to the world of marketing and and radio and all these kind of nuances that happen that make things sometimes not as straightforward as you would hope they would be so, you know, and it was true, right? It does have an older, soulful sound to it. And at the time, I've, I've, obviously, I was 18, 19, and, and I had these cornrows, and I was from Harlem. And, and, and at the same time, they heard the song and thought maybe I was like a 40-year-old soul singer. So they just did not know what to do with it, where to put it. And throughout my career, a lot of my songs have never kind of fit the mold. They've always just lived on their own, which... I'm proud of, and I think it's part of what makes me stand out, but it doesn't make it easy to market <laughs> and definitely doesn't make it easy to put it on a spot in the radio. So um, so we definitely had to get creative. So uh, this was one of those moments where Clive and the team really got creative, and I remember walking into that set to see Miss Oprah Winfrey for my first time ever, and obviously prior to that I'd only seen her on television. And it was the craziest, most surreal moment of my life. I was terrified. I was completely nervous. My hands were shaking the whole time I was playing. the big shot you know and so it was definitely for her to embrace me in that way and she's been a mentor to me ever since that day 
um, it was a it was a big 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 beginning. I'll never ever forget it. Yeah, I should mention Clive is is Clive Davis, you know, legendary record producer and, and executive, and um, it, it does feel like that was a bit of a turning point. I mean, you, you talk about how you you sort of got recognized right afterwards. Like, when did you realize that you were going to be sort of become a household name out of that performance? Oh, I I, I definitely didn't. I didn't have an I, I didn't have a clue about that. I didn't ever imagine that that would happen, but it it really did. It was so strange flying home after that performance. It was, you know, anybody, anybody from a, uh, you know, a 14-year-old kid to a 30-year-old young woman to a 70-year-old older man, everybody was like, I saw you on the Oprah show, and I could not believe how, you know, if, if, especially then the Oprah show was massive, and the amount of people that really watched it were so diverse. I couldn't believe it. It was crazy. And it was literally like in that moment, you could recognize, I, 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 I realized that I couldn't just kind of do my normal thing. Um, it was just a new world. It was a new world. There's so many great stories you tell in this book. I, this one has to do with this song, which I will say is my favorite Alicia Keys performance. Take a listen. That's your cover of Prince's How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. I want to point out that the U in that song, by the way, is the letter U. That cover was the product of a phone call you made to Prince when you were 17. I was hoping you could tell us a bit about that conversation. (laughs) Yeah, so I fell in love with this song, How Come You Don't Call Me, because like so many people, I'm a massive Prince fan. But I, um, I, I found this song, How Come You Don't Call Me, and I was riveted by it because it was just him on piano, stomping his foot. And it's so raw, and it was so genuine. And I just, I just couldn't believe this song. And as we were creating the album, the first album, I, I wanted to put it on there. And obviously, being brand new, I also didn't know that you have to call the songwriter and you have to get clearance to use another person's song. So here I am, 17 years old, and um, trying to figure out how to call Prince. I mean, how do you call Prince? Who <laughs> calls Prince? Like, nobody calls Prince and. So somehow we, you know, organized the team with the other team and the team, and we set up a moment to to be able to have a, a phone call with him. And I'm I call this number and I'm terrified. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what do you say? What do you say to somebody? And I know they put me on the phone because it would have been harder for him to say no to me. I know that's why they put me on the phone. <laughs> so, so I was. My heart is beating out of my chest and the phone is ringing and somebody picks up the phone and it's not him. And they're like, I'm like, hello, can I speak to Prince? And, and so they're like, oh, hold on. And so then another person gets on the phone and I ask the same question and they're like, hold on. And then another person gets on the phone. Finally, the person transfers the last time and you can tell it's him. He picks up hello. I am like trying to be cool and I say hello and I tell him how much I appreciate his artistry and how amazing he is and and how much I love this song how come you don't call me and by the way if anybody knows Prince they know he does not clear songs like that's not what he does he doesn't want a gang of people singing his songs and he will not clear them. He's it's notorious for it most people just get a no so I was expecting a no and I tell him and he's like, you're writing your own music, right? And I'm like, yep, I'm producing it. And he's like, I'm seeing what you're doing. I'm loving what you're doing. And he says to me, you know, why don't you come play it for me at Paisley Park? And I'm like, me? So he invites me to Paisley Park, which is his, you know, his very special place where he invites kind of all his most precious fans. And he has this, this amazing location where he has his studios and live performance space, something like I've never seen before at that time. And I come and I perform for him. And eventually he uh, 
did obviously grant me the right to use How Can You Don't Call Me. You get the feeling already that you were clear about who you wanted to be. I think there's a lot of artists who you know and and, and I know who haven't been able to stand their ground the way you have, who haven't been able to kind of be in charge of their own image and, and really kind of project realness uh, above all. Did you, in, in writing this book, get to reflect on maybe why you're that way or where that might come from? You know, it's, it's difficult. Um, it is. I mean, if you think about it, the whole music industry and entertainment industry can oftentimes be based on things that are quite superficial and almost not even real. And a lot of times you find yourself emulating a persona or emulating an expectation that people have of you as opposed to actually um, being who you are. I mean, you know, so many times you you go to a photo shoot and you're wearing thousands of dollars worth of dresses and jewelry and shoes and clothes. You can't afford those things. There's no way on planet Earth you're going to have those things. But in your, but in the images you're projecting, you're wearing all these things and you're looking all these ways. And I think that, you know, a lot of times that does become quite difficult to manage. It's oftentimes like just not really real. And so it's so easy to lose yourself. And, you know, prior to success or prior to people liking your work, you are just doing what you love. You're just doing what you think and what you feel and you're experimenting, you're trying. And once people kind of start to like what you've done, um, you feel obligated for them to like it again. And and then you start to think, well, how can I make them like this as opposed to what you like? And I think all of this all together becomes quite confusing and definitely easy for you to lose yourself in. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the book, which I think happens to all of us, no matter if we're artists or bankers or, you know, assistants or whatever we might be. You know, oftentimes I think we find ourselves really trying to accommodate other people's opinion of us and making sure that we're, you know, in some way likable. And a lot of times I think that takes away our knowledge of ourselves because we're just so busy wanting to please. So that's a lot of what I definitely have gone through and found my way through. And and in regards to talking about my book more myself, it really is how do you find your authentic self and what is that? Who is that? Mm. So, um, yeah, so I think that's why it kind of happens. And, and for different people, it happens in different ways. I, I Before we go, I, I didn't want to leave without talking a little bit about this music. Take a listen to this. Simple walk to the corner store Mama never thought she would be getting a call from the corner Said her son's been gunned down, been gunned down Can you come now? That's a bit of your song, Perfect Way to Die. And you've said it's written from the point of view of a mother whose child has been murdered because of the system of racism that looks at black life as unworthy. And, you know, and Alicia, we're looking at protests against anti-black racism and, and police brutality, and they're continuing around the world right now in the wake of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and other unarmed black people. I guess, you know, what do you want your music to add in this moment? Yeah, I mean, it's been really quite something, just the way that things have gone. I mean, even with us all experiencing COVID and 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 recognizing how we're all so intricately connected and how we were how we're all experiencing such a similar thing at the same time, um, you know, my my song Underdog really ended up being a soundtrack to that in such a powerful way that I, of course, you hope your song resonates, but you don't realize how it's going to do it or why it's going to do it or when it's going to do it. You never quite know these details. And so Underdog really did that during that time. And and so as time kept progressing, and I think, you know, all of us being more still and all of us having the opportunity to really look more clearly at what's happening in front of us in the world as opposed to running so quickly and being so distracted. And also with, you know, being able to see the inequities on so many levels so clearly and so painfully, there's just no turning away from it and no hiding from it. And so I think there is a a surge of collective consciousness. And so this song, Perfect Way to Die, I actually wrote it with an incredible writer named Sebastian Cole. And we wrote it based off of Michael Brown. Um, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, a lot of, a lot of, of the same situation that has been happening over and over again, and it's and it's horrible, 
with the police brutality and violence and systemic racism is crazy. So I never thought that this song would come out at this time, although I knew it would come out at some time and I knew it was such a powerful song. But with seeing everything as it's been progressing now, it just felt so right to um, share this song and for this to be a vehicle and a just just for our emotions, you know, for what we're feeling and what we're seeing and to put words to the pain that we're feeling and to the the discomfort and also the confusion and frustration and also hopefully you know continue for all of us to pay attention to what's happening and to make sure that we keep speaking up until George and Ahmad and Brianna and Tony and Trayvon and Sandra and Mike Brown and everybody who has you know died at the hands of police brutality and racism you know gets their justice. Does, does it feel different now Alicia? I think, I mean, it's a lot of the same in a lot of ways, which is hard, but I do, do feel that it is different than it's ever been before. I think people are more open than they've ever been before. I think we are less afraid to even face the truth, those hard truths that we are all having to face, every single last one of us, and and even be accountable for our behavior, our friends' behavior, our family's behavior, the the way we're speaking to our children, the the thoughts we're having, the things we're saying, the the you know really being much much more conscious and, and awakened by everything. And and although it's not a new scenario, I do think because we haven't been able to turn away, turn away, or be so busy that we just get distracted or think that oh that's just them over there, you know, which is a horrible thing I think we do as humanity sometimes. Um, it's just really brought us together. And I think it's propelling us to move forward together and to and to grow. And in that way, I really am feeling encouraged. Alicia Keys, so nice to talk to you. And thank you for your time and congratulations on your book. Thank you. Good to talk to you, too. You take care. You take care, too. And you, you stay safe during this pandemic. Thank you. You as well. And all the best. Alicia Keys is a singer, songwriter, producer, actor, and author. Her book is called More Myself, A Journey, and it's out everywhere now. And her latest album is called Alicia. It's coming out a bit later this year. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show is the beginning of our season. I don't know why. I think I had an old boss one time who used to say, like, it's not the beginning of your season. People listen to the radio year round. And maybe that's right. Maybe that's right. But my God, I still think of it as the beginning of the season. Come on, school's going back. Kinda. Stuff's back on TV. Kinda. And Q's starting again for the new year, even though, my God, I didn't go anywhere this summer. Point being is tomorrow's our our first show, and what a doozy it's going to be, man. Jane Fonda is on the show in a rare interview in her uh, 80s. She spent the night in jail protesting climate change, and she has a beautiful perspective on why to use your voice if you have one and everything she had to risk back in the 60s and 70s to protest against Vietnam and to speak up for what was then known as women's liberation. Really inspiring conversation with the great Jane Fonda. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.